0: This episode of the Mountaineer Media Podcast is sponsored by Mr. B, the only potato chip made in the great state of West Virginia. Check out their products in your local grocery store or online at mrb.com.
1: Here on the podcast, we've talked quite a bit about intrastellar-related topics. We've had the director of the Green Bank Telescope, we've had West Virginia's Rocket Boy, Homer Hickam, we've even had the chairman of Northrop Grumman, Wes Bush. Today, we continue into that field and we talk space and storytelling.
0: Edward Ashton is the author of the new book, Mickey Seven, a sci-fi thriller following the life of Mickey Barnes. A disposable human being who gets sent on dangerous and sometimes even suicidal missions. So what's the catch? Well, when Mickey dies, he wakes up in a newer version of himself just a few hours later, and does it all over again.
1: Yeah, it's an absolutely fascinating nail-biter, and even cooler, Warner Brothers has picked it up to become a movie. So, Mickey Seven, coming to a theater near you, one of these days.
0: We also discuss Ashton's life as a quantum physicist. Yes, let that sink in. He's a highly intelligent guy. He also has a very interesting story about extraterrestrial life because Cooper and I now believe we know where the aliens are and they are much closer than you
1: think. Make sure to stay tuned. So sit back, relax, get a drink, and enjoy this episode of the Mountaineer Media Podcast where we advocate for all things West Virginia directly from West Virginians. This is a great episode with Ed Ashton. Let's get to it right now. Mace, hit the music.
2: shine in West Virginia but the people
0: always do. All right everybody welcome back to this episode of the Mountaineer Media Podcast. CJ Harvey here, Cooper Zimmerman with me as always. Hello everybody. What's going on? Cool and then we've got a very special guest today Edward Ashton. He is the author of the new book Mickey Seven. He's a Fairmont native. And we're glad to have him on with us today. Congratulations on the new book it just released. And it's not the only thing. It's actually being picked up to become a movie by Warner Bros. and Plan B. Dude, can you even describe how exciting of a time it's been or, a, you know, roller coaster of emotions that you've been going through over the last couple of months?
2: I mean, it's, it's really it's been surreal. Um, it's it's been a strange experience. It hasn't just been the last couple of months, though. Uh, it's it's actually been a very long drawn out process. Uh, the timelines on these things are really long. I mm-hmm. so I finished this book in September of 2019. Uh, mm-hmm. We we sold it. We sold it initially to a publisher in the UK in early 2020, uh, and it was picked up. It was optioned by Warner Brothers. Shortly thereafter, is optioned in March of 2020. So that's you know that's when I found out about about that um, director Bong Bong Joon Ho. He was attached to the project shortly thereafter. I, I actually had a, a long call with him in I guess February of last year, about a year ago, a little over a year ago now, to to talk about details of the book, how he would put the script together, and and other things. So I've known this was all in the cooker that the the press release that came out a, a couple of weeks ago where uh, it was made public that Director Bond was, was attached to the project obviously was a really big deal from a publicity standpoint, but it, it was something I had been aware of for over a year at that point, but wasn't a lot to talk about.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. What's crazy about that is just that is him riding off this wave of fame from Parasite which mm-hmm. had just won all of these awards the year before. So you being on the phone with him, how cool was that? Because all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, the, the, maybe the most you know, well-known director in the world right now I'm on the phone with, and we're talking about making this movie.
2: Yeah, it was it was crazy. It was crazy. Um, it, we, we had about a two-hour Zoom call. Um, like I said, talking about various things. My wife was actually downstairs listening in and talking to my daughter on the phone while this was all going on. Um, it's... Uh, it was a very strange experience. He He's a brilliant man, by the way, and, and wonderful to talk to. Really, really personable. Very, uh, very good guy. But he is very secretive about the work that he does. And he was very clear that I was not allowed to tell anybody about Licking this. Thing so,
1: wow. not in
0: Interesting. The yeah.
1: Now, it's, I've always wondered, like, from an author's perspective, because, you know, like the classic kind of conundrum, people say it's like, oh, the movie, oh, the book. Yeah. You, you know, either one, people tend to say maybe, like, was their favorite or the movie changed it. But like better from, than
0: the other or something.
1: Right. From an author's perspective, I mean, you know, are you, do you kind of head into these things? I'm sure it's tremendously exciting. It's, you know, it's validation. It's cool. It's exposure. But is there any bit of you that's like, okay, I want to make sure like my story still gets told or is it kind of understood that it's like, it's now kind of taking on a new life of its own. And then some of the creative freedoms might change a little bit and it's not going to be an exact, you know, replica of the book, if that makes sense.
2: Well, I, I, you know, my story is getting told. My story is told in the book. Uh, the book is the book, the movie is the movie, they are totally different art forms. Uh, And, you know, I am not a screenwriter. I don't know anything about screenwriting. I don't pretend to during our conversation. Director Bong made it very clear. You know, I wrote a 320 page book. He's writing a 120 page script. There are many (laughs) things that are not going to show up in that script that are in the book. There's a lot of detail in the book about about backstory and about sort of world building. That stuff is, uh, you know, I would imagine not going to make it into the movie and that that's okay. That's okay. The movie is a, it's a different thing. It's a different experience. And, you know, I, I I think everyone should plan to experience both.
0: Yeah. Well, the the book is incredible. Um, St. Martin press sent us a copy. I I actually just finished it this morning ahead of this. So I I like tried to prep as much as possible over the last couple of days, but uh, Mickey seven is a sci-fi thriller that kind of follows the story of Mickey Barnes, over um, as they try and colonize this new planet um, and it's it's do, do you have like a time frame like where in the the distant future or are, are we talking thousands and tens of thousands of years ahead like where where is the timeline for Mickey 7 in particular uh, it's
2: it's about in, in terms of how the the story of the book is laid out it's about thousand uh, thousand years in the future from yeah. where we are now and so they they lay that out during the sort of world building process, they talk about sort of when this disaster occurred on earth that forced people to sort of scatter. Um, and, and then how long it's taken to spread out from there.
0: Yeah. So well, about a thousand years down the road. Well, I think it was a, a, like, uh, um, an ecological disaster, right? Didn't you, wasn't it kind of based on like there were, um, it wasn't just economic, but it was like, we, it was like the ecosystem, right? Or the, that's part of what the
2: nasty war.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's right. A nasty war. I, I think what's cool about this is that the book is you, you have these topics of like how earth kind of fell old earth. And then, even the story of Mickey Barnes and this um, expendable term that's being used. Those are conversations that we have today about kind of uploading our minds to AI and, Mm -hmm. you know, talking about if we don't try and save the planet, what could happen to Earth in the not too distant future? So it's like you've just kind of like taken those uh, headlines and topics and then just like, all right, let's go a thousand years in the future and see what happens. Or does that kind of make sense?
2: Yeah, I mean, so here's a fun fact. The first sort of written discussion, speculation around the topic of uploading your mind and creating a, an exact replica of you uh, dates back to 1775. So people have been thinking about this for a long time. <laughs> the first while I was thinking about it really seriously right now, I mean, he has active plans to do this. Um, yeah, I don't know how realistic they are, but he's, he's really thinking about it. But this is something people have been chewing over for a long time.
1: How do you, how do you get that? I mean, what's your creative process? I mean, I know we, we jumped on, I think I caught that you said you were born in New Orleans, you grew up in Fairmont. Were you a kid that was, you know, are you fascinated with like the stars? Like, are you fascinated with like movies like what caught your interest in trying to like tell stories, but from like a futuristic standpoint?
2: I mean, like, like most reader uh, writers, I started as a reader. Um, I I was a voracious reader when I was a kid. I, I, you know, my dad had a, a sort of a massive, library of books and I started picking books off of his shelves when I was six or seven years old probably stuff that was totally inappropriate for me to read to be totally honest with you um but he, he never worried about that he let me read whatever I wanted and and I found stuff that interested me and um I've got pretty broad tastes but one of the areas that I've always been really interested in is, is science fiction I, I find I'm a scientist by trade um I, I'm, a, I'm a cancer researcher um, which is a, a little adjacent to what I'm what I'm writing about obviously but I, you know all, all aspects of, of science fiction and of, and of actual science development you know are, are really of great interest to me
0: Wow that's yeah. very noble of you cancer research could you explain more like what it is that you research in particular like where where is your professional research at
2: oh so I, I uh, actually work for Philips, um the the toothbrush guys they do a lot of other stuff too uh, it's actually one of the biggest and most diverse companies in the world. Um, and the division that I work for, uh, we um, help pharma companies execute clinical trials. So, you know, basically, if, if you've, you've developed a new immunotherapy or something like that, you want to know if it works, we run the experiments that uh, allow you to determine that.
1: <laughs> wow okay wow that's impressive and i, I just now reading too you on your website you you teach quantum physics as well so this so you like you blend you're like a real life like you said scientist so some of this stuff is like an extension of your it, but would it be fair to say it's like an extension of your imagination kind of influenced by your daily work would that be fair
2: yeah i mean i i try to um i try to make sure that everything that i write is is grounded in reality i you know in a lot of cases in science fiction you see people just sort of making things up, um, you know, warp drives and jumping, jumping through hyperspace and so on and so forth. I really try to avoid that stuff. Um, I like to, to ground everything in, in what I know. Um, my, my first book, um, Three Days in April, was science fiction as well. But, you know, the, the line that I had at that time was, I really needed to publish that one quickly so that it didn't become a historical fiction, um, because it was, it was that sort of near future and just, very close projections of stuff that was already going on. This one's a little further in the future, obviously, but everything that that I write about in here is at least a reasonably realistic projection of physics that we understand right now.
0: Yeah, interesting. So the, the, the book, Mickey Seven, is about Mickey Barnes. Are you Mickey Barnes? Do you write books with you as the centerpiece? Like, do you- Oh
2: God, use- no. That would be a terrible book. That would be really boring. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I, I live in the woods and, and uh, you know, chop up lumber and stuff. I'm not an interesting person. Uh, now, Mickey Barnes, the, the, the nugget of him, actually, can't, I, have, I have a good friend uh, named Mickey. Uh, and, and when I was imagining sort of the physicality of him, what he looks like, how he's built, um, that, that was sort of built off off my friend. Um, the personality, not so much. That's, you know, when, when I'm developing a character you have to build the personality traits of the character to match the plot points of the book so you have a way that you want the plot to move you know that a character is going to have to react in a certain way to a certain experience and so you have to give him the personality traits that would make it natural for him to react that way if if you have a character who has to you know fight a monster You have to build somebody. You have to build a character who's got the sort of fortitude and the courage that would allow him to do that. You can't have a character who is sort of developed as as you know physically timid or cowardly and then have him fight a dragon. That's not going to work. So you have to build a character to meet the story, and that's that's what I did with Mickey and with all the other characters in the book as well.
1: CJ, we've got big news here at Mountaineer Media. Mr. B. Chips has agreed to stay on board and remain our presenting sponsor for all of 2022.
0: That's easily the best news of 2022 so far. I'm a little biased, I get it. But no, this is huge news for us and Mary Ann Kettleson is the CEO of Mr. B Potato Chip, the only potato chip made in the great state of West Virginia. So Mary Ann, thank you for believing in us. We certainly believe in what you and Mr. B is doing as a whole. And Cooper, Mary Ann, just like one of the coolest people out there, right? We've spoken with her on a handful of occasions. She's ultra supportive, but she's just like this
1: down to earth, chill person, the queen bee, as we like to say. He's an absolute rock star, guys. Check him out, mrb.com. Find them in your local grocery store. We're so, so uh, proud and supportive of Mr. B because they believe in us and they believe in West Virginia. Cooper, there are a couple things in life that
0: you really just like can't mess up. You really have to nail it on the head, like buying a car, buying a home, buying an engagement ring, something that you and producer Mason Jack just went through. And both of you guys just bought your rings from one of the most trusted jewelry stores in all of West Virginia. And they are now a proud sponsor of Mountaineer Media, Calvin Royals Jewelry. And Cooper, that was a great decision that you made going to them to buy that ring, wasn't it?
1: It absolutely was. It was a little stressful, but I tell you what, once I walked into the doors at Calvin Broyles, I went to their South Charleston location and look, they made it so easy. I was not put under any pressure. I was informed. It was fun. It was uplifting. It was all about creating the best experience for me, buying it, but also with my fiance in mind. They listened to me and I ended up getting a great piece of jewelry, and I think you can too. Anybody listening can go to South Charleston, Taze Valley, or Beckley, go in there and see Calvin Broyles. Mention Mountaineer Media. and I'm they're going to get a little smile across their face because they're investing right back in West Virginia. They even have something called the Harton West Virginia collection and money that comes from that goes towards a scholarship for West Virginia students. So they believe in West Virginia, just like we do. Calvin Royal Jewelers, proud partner of Mountaineer Media.
0: Yeah, you can check them out online. They also have stores in Beckley, Taze Valley and like Cooper said, South Charleston. So check them out online, check them out in stores. but. Calvin Broyles Jewelry, proud sponsor of Mountaineer Media.
1: You mentioned you, you're, so you're in a cabin. So you, is that like purposely, like you find creatively, you like kind of a peace and quiet? Is that part of your process? Try to like get out of like hustle and bustle of things and allow you to kind of let your imagination and, and research and work kind of like flourish? Or, or is that a strategic thing or is that just kind of life took you that way and to live in a cabin in New York in the woods?
2: That said I grew up in a, in the woods in West Virginia and I wanted to live in the woods in new york too <laughs> it's just, that's just that's how I like to that's how I like to be i like uh I like the fact that I can walk out my back door and walk directly into the forest and walk for ten miles and not see another person that's yeah a lot of people would find that to be like a nightmarish existence that's it's perfect for me
0: yeah do you do you recall any childhood memories growing up in fairmont that kind of Sparked your interest in what you're doing now, or do any of your professional ventures now tie back to what you did or learned in West Virginia outside of maybe just reading the books off your your dad's bookshelf?
2: I mean, every everything builds one on top of another to to create the person we are today. Like the, mm-hmm. my my childhood clearly informs everything about me today. That was, those were my formative years. That's when my personality was formed. That's when all of my interests were formed. It was all uh, it was all in West Virginia. Uh, I, you know, I've written about West Virginia, Some of my others, I've written a number of stories that are set in West Virginia, um, it's it's a, a huge part of my life, uh, you know, I, I can't point to a particular sort of event that occurred that made me want to, you know, write about somebody getting killed over and over, um, that's <laughs> that, 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 that's not a, a road I want to go down here, but um, yeah, it, it's, it's obviously a big part of my life.
0: So we were talking about this upcoming episode, not a couple of days ago, I guess, and and I was kind of looking for West Virginia references in the book. And clearly there aren't any ties directly to like West Virginia or anything like that, but you did give a Warner Von Braun reference in the, in Mickey seven. So Warner Von Braun, of course, is like a Homer Hickam's, you know, idol. And so that was it. I, I kind of made up a West Virginia connection with Mickey seven, but uh, I thought that was, it was kind of funny that you mentioned and Warner like Von said, Braun of all people.
2: It's all, it's all, it's all a rich tapestry. Um, and, 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 you know, my my background and and the experience that I had in West Virginia feed into everything that I do and everything. Even even if I'm, you know, setting a story, you know, a thousand years in the future and a hundred light years away, it's it's still, you know, that the, the cultural background and everything else it all feeds in.
1: You think I had that you know, science fiction novels. Um, I think some people maybe that aren't into them, or maybe even you could say dismissive of them, like as in terms of their impact into like society and culture. But would you, would you argue that? Like, I think if you think of a book like 1984 by George Orwell, like, it's almost like we're referencing that now. It was written, you know, quite a ways back, but we're referencing it now as, you know, we try to use it as, you know, we pull analogies from it of things that are actually happening. And maybe right when it was written, maybe it, it seemed so far off, but now it's like, oh, shit, that's kind of true. Like, the science, the science fiction sometimes help us like understand and conceptualize like what the real future could be of everyday life? Even though it, at the time reading, it's like, well, that could probably never happen. But then it's like 50, 60 years later, it's like, well, actually that's almost pretty damn similar and, to what And happened. now they are banning books, you know, and just right. like right. that,
0: talking about Fahrenheit 360, whatever. It's a, it's like that. that is actually happening. I mean, there are times that that's happening.
2: I mean, I think any good literature and science fiction definitely falls in this category is a commentary on the world of today. So, you know, and and science fiction actually is an ideal vehicle in a lot of ways to talk about issues that are going on in the world today, because you can take an issue that would be really emotionally charged. And most of us, when we talk about things that that are important to us emotionally, we can't look at them dispassionately. We can't look at them without our own sort of blinders on. But if you take it and abstract it and said, okay, well, this isn't really this conflict that's going on on Earth. This isn't really uh, you know, talking about how global warming affects people on this planet right now, right? We've abstracted this out to something that's happening on this other planet, That it's not really you and your friends and it's not really this other country that maybe you're mad at. It's these completely different people, but they're experiencing the same problem and you can explore that problem and allow people to see it from both sides with their emotional blinders off. And and I think I think that's one of the things that science fiction really contributes to to culture and into sort of literary
0: world. Or, or, or do, you, do you find that even science fiction I mean they're cautionary tales in a way, right? Even though you don't necessarily talk about how what ruined earth or how old earth, you know, kind of set the course for this future. I mean, you do a little bit, but in a in in your book it's almost like well, if we maybe took better care of Earth, maybe we don't even get off this planet. Or if we do, then we're all in better shape than, you know, what we how we treated our first planet or something like that. Do you even find that science fiction is, is cautionary tales, more or less? Oh, absolutely. And
2: you can't be you can't be heavy handed about it. Right? If you if you write, um, if you write a book that's sort of preachy about these sorts of issues, nobody's going to want to read it. It's boring. It's obvious that the author sort of beating you over the head with uh, you know, with an agenda, I, I try really hard not to do that. Um, but, you know, for instance, in Mickey seven, I have just a little snippet of a story that I s- sneak in there. one of these stories within the stories where Mickey's talking about another colony that failed. And he talks about how, well, the reason it failed was because when they got there, um, they found that the planet was no longer inhabitable, it was too hot. And they thought it probably was due to a runaway greenhouse effect that it had been habitable. And, and now something had happened. And for instance, we know that happened to Venus. Venus was warm and wet at, at, about 700 million years ago. You know, at, at the time that there was already life on Earth, there's a reasonable possibility there was life on Venus as well. Uh, uh-huh. yeah. and, and there was, we don't know exactly what happened, but there was a massive outgassing of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And now you can melt lead on the surface. You know, I mean, that, that's, that is a thing that we know has happened to another planet in our solar system. And is it going to, is something like that going to happen to Earth? I mean, I hope not, you know, but it, not it, anytime
0: it, soon, at least it, yeah. it's, something
2: we need, it's something we need to consider and think about, though, the, yeah. you know, the, these are sorts of things that um, it's nice to get that bug into people's heads to think like there is a serious worst case scenario here that we might want to be considering.
1: Speaking of, of life, and anytime we have, you know, someone who teaches, you know, quantum physics, writes about science fiction, we'd be remiss to not bring up aliens, personal passion of mine, uh, amateur researcher, conspiracy theorist, of just a uh, curious individual, I would say myself of just, you know, pondering it, right, thinking about it, whatnot. Two questions. One, I think, you know, you spoke, you, you said you did have an interesting alien story. So I'd love to hear that. But two, what is your genuine take? And maybe depending on if you wear two two different hats, like maybe the scientist in you thinks one thing, or then the science fiction dreamer thinks another thing, like what is your take on just the realities of life out there in the universe? Um, Doesn't have to be, you know, small green men, but just the realities of what, um, you know, could be out there like we had CJ what the, the director of the green bank telescope on a couple months ago talking about it he he kind of got giddy about it his personal opinions that it's probably likely but he's, he's a trained scientist and he's you know used to uh, uh, going by what he can see in research but at the same time if you look at statistics you know it's pretty damn near it's possible that it could be so what, what's your overall take on aliens
2: well I mean I think it is it is impossible to believe that this is the only planet in the universe that harbors life um, we know that life arose on earth almost the moment that it was physically possible to do so. I mean, at the point where the earth had cooled to to where we had liquid water, it was a blink of an eye before we had life here, which indicates that it's not actually that difficult to get something like that started. So I I think it's hard to believe that it's, you know, that life in some form is not in, in many places throughout the universe. Now, the question of whether there are other technological species out there—the you know, sort of people who build cars and 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 guns and and airplanes that's a completely different question we've got no evidence of that at all right now and we have been looking we've been listening and there's there's not a lot of radio signals bouncing around out there that we can detect nothing nothing like that and so that leads to uh you know the, the famous formulation of fermi's paradox where is everyone we know there should be other people out there and we don't see any evidence that there are and there are a number of hypotheses for why that would be. The one that is um, most plausible to me, but also creepiest, is the dark forest hypothesis. And so that's, Shen Lu talked about this in the Three-Body Problem. The basic idea is that, um, imagine the, it is possible to accelerate an object to close to the speed of light, which is what you kind of would have to do to really travel around in the universe. So. A macro object, something the size of a you know, a spaceship, traveling at that speed, is carrying enough kinetic energy to destroy a planet. I mean, you can literally crack a planet open like an eggshell if you plowed into it with that. And moreover, that's not something you can defend against because the light that is announcing the arrival of this object gets <laughs> you a bare fraction of a second before the object itself. Yeah, you wouldn't even see it right which means that if it's possible to do that and right now we don't we don't know that it is the best physics we have right now says you can accelerate something to about 0.3 c um but if if it's possible to go faster than that if it's possible to get up to that sort of 0.9 0.95 c speed that means it's possible for any species that detects another species to wipe it out with no possibility of defense (laughs) what that means is as a rational species if you detect another species you have to wipe them out because you know that at any moment they could do it to you. Oh, it which Ill. leads, <laughs> yeah, which leads to the conclusion that the only way to survive in this universe, if that's true, and we don't know that the physics supports it, but if that's true, the only way to survive in this universe is either to immediately destroy every other species you detect, or to be very, very quiet and detects oh. you. And that's that's where where they get the what well, they call the dark forest hypothesis. It's a dark forest filled with predators. And the only ones who survive are the ones who are, who are quiet, stay in the nest and don't, you know, the, the birds that cheap and make a lot of noise, they get eaten quickly. And the ones that stay quiet, yeah. they have a chance to survive.
1: That's we've been pretty, pretty loud,
0: too. <laughs> I don't think we've been quiet.
2: <laughs> uh, we haven't been as loud as you might think. I mean, okay. you know, talk about TV broadcasts and things like that. Those actually, you know, with the R-squared rule, those the signal from that dissipates pretty quickly. Um, but the idea that people bring up now, of using radio tels, telescopes to beam directed messages at individual stars where we think there might be a possibility for life. You know, Carl Sagan said a few things about that. Um, I, I think that's a really bad idea. Sort <laughs> you know, of announcing ourselves in that loud way. I, I think that's probably a pretty poor choice. So, you know, I, I really hope the cooler heads prevail and that sort of thing doesn't really progress.
1: PJ, when we see other West Virginia companies pouring their heart and soul into the mountain state, it really does fire us up. And our sponsor, Building Appalachia, man, I tell you, they're doing exactly that. Go ahead and tell the listeners what exactly Building Appalachia does. Well, if you're looking to buy or sell a home in Kanawha,
0: Putnam, or Cabell counties, definitely reach out to Building Appalachia, buildingappalachia.com. Jordan Christ and Jacob Skinner, we had them on the podcast. They're genuine guys, and they just want to make this part of West Virginia better. They want to connect people with their perfect home, or they want to renovate a home and connect it with somebody that it might be their perfect home, the next family that moves in there. So, Find these guys online, buildingappalachia.com, and if you're looking to buy or sell a home in Kanawha, Putnam, or Cabell Counties, these are the guys that you need to get connected with. So colonization of other planets, are you pro or con? I mean, are you for, against, like, if if we tried to colonize the moon and Mars, is that one, possible, and two, you know, are you for it?
2: I mean, it's It's definitely possible. I mean, for, for sure. sure it's possible. You know, Elon Musk is talking about doing that on what, like next week, right? He sees to on Mars, but it, whatever. Um, it's it's physically possible. Is it a good idea from a species survival standpoint? Yeah, it probably is a good idea because the more places we're spread to, um, the less possibility there is that one one disaster wipes us all out. Mm-hmm. Uh, would it be something I would want to do? I, yeah, I don't know. I, Earth's pretty nice. I like it here. I, I don't think it would be so comfortable to, to be on, you know, you, you go to Mars to work for Elon Musk for the rest of your life. I, I don't think you're going to have as happy a life as what I have here. So that that's <laughs> something that I I would personally be in favor of. But you're, like,
1: you're mining like Mars wrong. Yeah, not much lumber shop <laughs> on Mars.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, my understanding is that Elon's tough on the people who work in his factories and they get to go home at night. I suspect he's going to be a lot rougher on the guys on Mars who really <laughs> <kind of laughs>
0: <laughs> they got nowhere to go
2: it's just yeah. in their bunks
0: <laughs> that's that
1: so, so, wow. so under that theory it's like well it's hard to think that like because the other theory of like that the government already knows about aliens but under that one theory that like as soon as something if we were to detect them or they were to detect us it would almost be like instantaneous or whatever like do you think like in your, i know we're just you know being hypothetical here but like it, like how far in advance do you think the leaders of the world would know something versus like the public would know something
2: I mean that would depend on the what the nature of the contact. So you're talking about like if if we were contacted by some mm-hmm. some extraterrestrial species, mm-hmm. uh, you know that that would talk, it'd depend on the nature of the contact. And um, I think it's unlikely that that's occurred, but that's not something that's not something at this time that can be ruled out. I you know I mentioned when we were talking earlier. I I, I worked for the government for a number of years. Um, I had. Um, of the six sort of categorized clearances that you can get in national security, I had four of the top six. Oh wow! Um, and I and I I've been you know I I went to places I went to military installations that are you know that people don't have access to. Um, you know they talk about Area Fifty One. Area Fifty One is, is is not where any aliens are. Area Fifty One obviously is that that's a lot of burn pits and some you know some advanced aircraft development stuff. But Wright Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, uh, spent a fair amount of time there as well, and there is a building on Wright Patt. As I said, I I don't have I didn't have every clearance you could have, but I had most of them, and I knew people who had the clearances that I did not have, and I didn't know anybody who was able to get into this one building at Wright Patt. There's one building that's set off from the others. It's behind its own fencing. Uh, I didn't have the clearance to get anywhere close to it. I didn't know anyone else who did. And the joke was, that's where the aliens actually are. <laughs> that's and the it building. It was only kind of half a joke. We were we were not sure we were actually joking about this. There's something there that, despite the fact that I was cleared to know pretty much everything the government knows, I was not cleared to know what was in that building. Uh, and it's it's kind of hard to imagine what it was if it wasn't that. Of all places,
0: the aliens are in Ohio. That's a great spot, huh? It's a nice
2: (laughs) state. I got a brother in Ohio, too. He has a good time there.
0: (laughs) They're hiding in plain sight. So, okay, so when these guys, I know one or two guys in particular, and I'm fumbling the names, but they've been on Rogan's podcast and they swear that there are aliens. We have evidence of alien aircrafts. That stuff, I mean... From what I'm hearing from you is that it really has not been proven, or if it is, there is a small group of people that know and probably sure that they wouldn't be going on Joe Rogan's podcast if it's true.
2: I mean, there is there is evidence that there are some things going on that at least the public doesn't have the information to understand what is happening and whether that's aliens or whether that's the the Chinese had developed advanced propulsion techniques that we haven't caught up to. We we don't. I certainly don't have the information to to say one way or the other. And yeah, I've I've seen some of the some of the folks that you're talking about. I've I've seen someone talking, and they're yeah, you're right. They're pretty adamant that they've seen stuff um, that that um, would indicate that. But I I I don't have the, the ability to judge how credible that is.
1: Hmm. I don't.
2: I, I can't say it's it. not true, but I, I'm certainly not going to say that you know that it that it is true either.
1: Yeah. Believer. I'm a believer. I mean, like yeah. from the from the simple like thing of just like math, like like you said, like it's it seems like just like there's billions and billions of galaxies and billions and billions of plants and all this. Like it, it's hard to believe that just one single planet like us just happened to be the only planet that had developed life. So it's like, will we find them? I don't know, but it, it feels like it's it's certainly possible. Oh, well,
2: that is definitely like I said, I, I think it's inconceivable that there's not other life out there. The question is, and that we don't know yet is does basic physics support the ability to move across the distances that that we're talking about you know that the closest the closest star to us is is three and a half light years away four light years away and that's you know at at the speeds that we can generate right now you're talking about thousands of years to make even that short journey uh and so we think physics might support moving much faster than that but it hasn't been demonstrated
1: Quantum, qu- quantum physics, explain like the core things to CJ and I, like we're like fifth graders. Like what would, I mean, like what are some of the things like, you know, I try to read about it, but like what are some of the things that are, that would I guess shock most people's understanding that like quantum physics are just like, oh yeah, that's just like, that's a easily understood phenomenon. But for someone like us, the untrained person, what, what would be like utterly shocking?
2: Well, uh, the interesting, I mean, the, the reason I call it quantum physics is, is because when you get down to a small enough scale, um, the ideas that we have about how things move and how things operate break down and it's almost like they become digitized. So I'll give you an example that I use in, in my classes. I, so I te- teach magnetic resonance physics. That's specifically what I'm talking about, which relates to my medical research, obviously. Um, so magnetic resonance, the way a scanner works is we all are full of protons, right? We got all, a bunch of hydrogen inside of us and a hydrogen atom is a magnet. It's got a charge, and it's got spin, and that causes it to have a magnetic field. So when you go in an MRI scanner, it puts you in there. It's a giant magnet. It's, a, it's over a billion times more powerful than the Earth's magnetic field, and it makes all those little magnets inside your body line up with the magnetic field in the magnet, just like sort of a compass needle lines up with the Earth's magnetic field when you're looking at a compass, except it doesn't. Those little magnets don't line up exactly with the magnetic field. They line up in exactly one of two ways, either 54 degrees, 44 minutes off of true north or 54 degrees, 44 minutes off of true south. Those are the only two orientations that those magnets can take on. It is physically impossible for them to be anywhere in between any of those two angles. It's one or the other, and they can flip back and forth between states, but they don't flip by shifting around. They instantaneously transfer from being 5444 off north to 5444 off south. So what would explain that? Yeah, is, I don't know. <laughs> well, one way to explain that, and one way that, that people, one explanation people put forth is if you were coding a simulation. Okay. And you were deciding, well, how many bits am I going to allocate to store the orientation of an individual proton? I'm not going to waste a whole bite. I'm not going to waste, you know, I'll just put one bit, it'll either be one or zero, it'll be north or south. 5444 north 5444 south We'll just we'll wait nobody's going to look that close they're not going to notice it's only one byte it'll be fine. that's what video game designers do all the time right the things that they don't think the user is going to look at they don't apply much data or much memory to processing. That's one explanation for why quantum physics is the way it is because whoever programmed our universe, whoever coded our universe was kind of lazy when they got down to really small scales they're like I'm not going to go into the details here. I'll no, just give a one or a zero and we'll leave it at that.
0: That's a crock of shit. If we were <laughs> sloppily designed by another
1: creator, then that's embarrassing for it us. Right? It's, on.
0: On. it's terrible. It's kind of sad to
2: think about. Yeah,
1: sloppy. Does that Does that feed into the simulation theory, or am I mixing yeah. too? So, like, I mean, like, I, I, I get what you're saying. Like, it's so small that it's like almost like code, like zero one code at, at that level. But like, help help me understand like the simulation theory that there's like I guess like multiple like simultaneous versions, I guess, going on of life going on, if that makes sense.
2: Well, that there's two arguments for why we are actually living in a simulation and not living in an actual physical universe. The first is the sort of things that I'm talking, like you can see the same thing in the pattern of microwave background radiation in the universe, right? It appears to be quantized at at a fine scale. There's lots of things, I mean, like I said, that's where the name quantum physics come from is everything is quantized and appears to be sort of digitized at a very fine scale. So that's one piece of evidence that our universe kind of looks like code. It looks like what Mm -hmm. our our simulated code is. The second argument is if it is possible to make a simulated universe, somebody would have done it. Right. And they might've made more of them. And then, if it's a well-simulated universe, people in those simulated universes might have simulated their own little universe. Rick and Morty did a whole For episode. For sure, Rick
0: and Morty is the right? same concept. Yeah, yeah
2: they, they did. And, and what that means is that there, if that is true, if that's possible, that means that there are an infinite number of simulated universes in relation Inside to it. the one real universe, which means just by probability, if you exist in a universe, you've got an infinite greater probability of existing a simulated one than being one of those few lucky people who happen to exist in the one real universe.
0: Well, I hope it's if we are a simulation, then we're doing more than just like charging a car battery or some shit, like whatever the Rick and Morty <laughs> thing was. Hopefully we have like a better assignment than that. So yeah, going, going back to like this almost error that 54 degrees north-south could that almost be human error? Maybe we have designed these things. I have no clue, but maybe it's could it be human error that why that's almost lining up improperly?
2: Oh no, no! This it, this is a basic physical property. It's um, it's been demonstrated
1: experimentally. We, we've got these that
0: shit down real quick, didn't
2: we? He? <laughs> he <laughs> he <said>, no way!
1: <laughs> yeah, they got that figured out, man. That's not yeah, what me <laughs> You're me trying to solve the problems of the universe. <laughs> I mean, like, these, nah. these
2: magnets will literally like. Pull a piece of metal out of your body. We, 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 yeah. We've had kids like in a hospital where I used to work, we had a case where a, a machinist came in for an MRI and he didn't realize that he had a metal chip.
0: Oh my behind God. His
2: eye from, some, from his work. He didn't tell us that he was a machinist. And literally, it like yeah. when he went in the room, it it, it destroyed his eye. It just like oh ripped, out of, ripped it out of his head. These are very powerful magnets. And, you know, we've, we've got a pretty good idea of how they work at this point.
1: TJ, when I'm cooking dinner, I at this point in the evening, I've got little mental capacity left. So something that has really improved my life and made cooking dinner a breeze is using raised Rub. Now, Ray's Rub is a true all-purpose seasoning that's packed full of mouthwatering herbs and spices, 21 of them to be exact.
0: Yeah, it's like a mouthful of flavor when that chicken pork or vegetables get in your mouth when you take that first bite with raised rub sprinkled on top or if you seasoned it beforehand it's just like boom punches you right in the mouth it's it's a delicious taste you can get it on raised rubs website or amazon.com and they just ship it right to your door man brody prudnik was a former guest we had him on he was awesome and he oversees the raised rub operation based out of morgantown but uh, man, this is a west virginia company to its core and we are Loving to be proud partners with Razor Up Cooper.
1: Order Razor Up today. CJ, one of the things that you just gotta have in life is a job. And if you're in West Virginia, I think the best place you can go is Mountaineer Employment Solutions. Now they're a premier talent acquisition agency. So that means if you're a small business, they can help you get employees. Or if you're just looking for a job, Mountaineer Employment Solutions can help you do that. Hold on, Cooper.
0: I'm writing that down. You said J-O-B. Oh, job. Yeah. Sorry. I'm not great at spelling. That took me a second to get there. But yeah, definitely. Mountaineer Employment Solutions is the way to go. If you're looking for a job or for a company that, you know, if you need staffing for your company, definitely check those guys out. You can find them online. Beamountaineer.com. That's Beamountaineer.com. Bill Carter. Found this company. He's an awesome guy, and he's going to hook you up. He's going to—he's genuine, man. He just wants to help people, especially West Virginia businesses. So go check them out. Mountaineer Employment Solutions. You can find them online at beamountaineer.com, or find either of their locations in person in Morgantown and in South Charleston.
1: Not to switch gears, but how does this work? Like, you ever heard of like the golden ratio? Are you familiar with that? essentially it's like the like the repetitive yeah. like shape and form that appears like, like in nature and like the ancient egyptians like you can like you can look at the construction of the pyramids and they used it like time and time again to basically again, I'm speaking about shit that I have no idea about, but essentially it's like, it appears in nature, but then it also appears in like human building and whatnot. It's so essentially it's like some type of proportion measurement that helps you, I guess, scale something appropriately. Um, like you can scale up or scale down with it, uh, apparently. It's called a golden ratio, if I'm not mistaken.
2: Yeah, and no, I'm, I'm familiar with what you're talking about vaguely, but um, in, in terms of details, yeah, you're a little, out, you're a little outside my expertise there. Interesting.
0: Interesting. Well, let's shift gears back to the, the writings, to the sci-fi world. When you are writing sci-fi books, do you have other authors that give you creative, you know, help you get the creative juices flowing? Like who are some of your favorite sci-fi writers that maybe you've drawn inspiration from?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, anyone who writes, who says that they're not drawing inspiration from people rather than people who come before uh, they're, they're, they're lying. N- none of us work in a vacuum. None of us are just making things up whole cloth out of our heads. And if mm-hmm. you, you know, if, if you've read a, a lot of, of older science fiction and you're looking at Mickey seven, you'll see a lot of callback or any of my books, you'll see a lot of callbacks to, uh, to ideas that have shown up in other books that other writers have, have played around with. That's, that's the way all writers work. Um, you know, I grew up, I, I cut my teeth on things like, uh, Clifford D. Simack. um, Alice Sheldon, um, some of the sort of classic science fiction writers of the 50s and 60s and 70s, that's what was on my dad's bookshelf. And so that's what I was pulling down and reading when I was a little kid. Um, More recently, I I, I really appreciate um, people like uh, David Brin, who's who's a, you know, who's a great writer and lucky more recently, um, somebody I really admire Octavia Butler, obviously is, you know, you, you can see some influences of her work in my in my stuff as well. Um, But like I said, I'm a gracious reader. I, I, I tear through a a lot of books per year, every year. And all of that just like it accumulates in the back of your head. And then you find little bits and pieces of it falling out into your own work.
0: Are there, are there like levels, not levels, but even just spheres of like sci-fi within sci-fi, like, okay, not everybody that's a star Wars, star Trek fan will be a fan of, of some of the other science fiction work. Like, Star Wars and Star Trek is not the the bar right that's that's not where it begins and ends right that's right. a dumb question I know but that's just like not everybody's a fan of that right like you said the almost like the fake stuff draws some people off right turns people off
2: yeah well that that's a big cut point in science fiction between between what they call hard science fiction and soft science fiction so hard science fiction which is mostly what I do um mm-hmm. uh, is, is based in actual physics and sort of, you, you're you not supposed to put stuff in there that is just made up or, or sort work. of magical. Soft science fiction, you know, that the rules are a little off. You sometimes even see a little crossing over into fantasy there where you might, you know, they, I've, I've seen things that are um, sort of set in a science fiction world, but also there's like, there's magic, or there's wizards or whatever, um, you know, which is kind of what Star Wars is, right? I mm-hmm. mean, what is, what it's is a the force. Jedi, the space wizard, right? I mean, yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, those guys yeah. are. I mean, that's, so that, you know, and those are, those are both great. And then you also have it sort of on a different axis, a cut between people who are ideas writers where they come up with some really great science concept and like, I want to write a book about that. And then they sort of build some characters to illustrate their science idea. Um, so like Andy Ware is a master of this. Andy Ware writes puzzle books, right? The Martian or, or uh, Project Hail Mary. And they're fantastic. He's, he's so good at that. But there's not a lot of character in his, huh. it, typically his books only mm-hmm. have one character, right? You've got Mark Wise, yes. he's there yes. by himself, right? Project Tail Mary, same thing. You've got one guy in a spaceship by himself solving puzzles. Whereas, like if you look at at my work or 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 stuff by um, you know, George R. R. Martin, for instance, um, it's much more character driven. So there's a there's situations or science stuff going on, um, but but the heart of the story is there's these characters. They have emotional interactions with each other. They have, you know, bonds that are made and broken between themselves, in a similar way that a sort of a contemporary story set in midtown Manhattan would would be based on on character. Yeah. Um, and so that's like I said, there are great books in both of those spaces, but it it, it is a, a a big break in the, in the genre.
0: So when you sit down to write something like Mickey Six. Do you have the beginning? Do you have the end, or do you have the middle figured out first?
2: That really um, that varies. It's really it's tough to it's tough to write a book if you don't at least have a vague idea of what the plot arc is going to be. Mm-hmm. You have to know where it starts, and you have to know where it where it's going. Because if you don't know where it's going, there there's no way to map it out. And so I, I usually will start with. Um, at least a, a sort of a vague like two-page plot outline, of, a, a description of sort of where are we actually progressing with this with this plot. Um, I've experimented with, with different projects with actually going and doing a detailed sort of chapter by chapter and then scene by scene outline off of that. That's, that becomes really difficult to do um, because a lot of stuff develops organically in your head as you're writing. Like you're writing <laughs> a scene and then you realize, oh wow, this, this this actually requires this next thing to happen and that's going to require this next thing to happen. And you didn't know that when you were writing <laughs> four chapters ago, it's just occurred to you while you're... So there, yeah, there, right. is a, there always is a sort of a making it up as you go aspect to it and then you hope you're able to pull it all together at the end. But if you don't start out with some kind of a roadmap, you're, you're just going to have a wandering mess and then nobody wants to read that.
0: Okay, give us some detail then. So Mickey 7 was it mickey barnes was the character born or was the the finish born but first you know was it the um, end or the beginning for mickey for mickey seven well,
2: mickey seven had a had a really weird sort of gestation because it began as a short story the first chapter of mickey seven began as a short story which didn't work because it didn't have an ending it's like, okay, so I got to write some more about this. So then I, I grew it out into a novella, about a 25,000 word novella. But that didn't really have a, a satisfying ending either. I'm like, okay, this, this is actually a book. This, has, this, this is not going to work as these short pieces. And so I thought I had an ending and I didn't. And then I thought I had another ending and I didn't when I got there, it still wasn't <laughs> satisfactory. And so I had I had to come up with, with the full, you know like 90,000 word book before I could actually tell the story I wanted to tell. But were that's there, not where I started going when I first started with
0: it I promise I'll, I'll stop asking questions because I want people to read the book Mickey 7 um, were there of those things that you' were just talking about like the the problems that you have you don't even know that you're gonna have when you start the project what were some of those dominoes that fell later in the project that you didn't necessarily foresee in particular talking about Mickey 7
2: Well the, I, I mean I don't want to give, any, give any spoilers but um, initially, like the short story into the novella was going to be more about just the sort of interactions within the colonists and the problems that the 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 colonists were having amongst themselves, mm-hmm. um, not so much the interaction they had with the natives and interesting. as the book got, <laughs> and, and, but but the natives had to get involved early on, and that's part of what I needed to expand it to. To me, was the 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 interactions and how the plot was going to work out in terms of the conflict between the human colonists and the natives. Interesting. That's really what caused it to stretch out from you know from six thousand words to twenty five thousand to ninety thousand.
0: That's funny because literally the first chapter of the book is the interaction between the natives and the colonists. Or yeah, but
2: in my initial idea, that was going to be the end of it. There there, there there weren't going to be any any. It was it was all going to be about basically mickey seven and mickey eight's interactions interesting um, and and but then i realized that that like i said it didn't come to a satisfactory conclusion and i needed more and and that's yeah you know, that, that's when the creepers got pulled back in
0: yeah well it's a great story it's a an incredible book um and we uh it, okay it, do you have any more information that you can give us about how the the movie process works now like where are we at and when in, are we going to even be able to see anything on the screen
2: um well you know most of what i know is what was in that press release mm-hmm. um, so it's you know uh director bong has has written a script um which i guess everybody's happy with as you would expect i mean the man's a genius um it would be pretty shocking to me if he hadn't written a great script um robert pattinson is attached to star which i think is going to be absolutely fantastic um you know in, in uh, based on his work going all the way back to when he was a kid, you know, that the, the guy's a brilliant actor. This is going to be a really challenging part because he has to play two different characters who are subtly different, you know, Mickey seven and Mickey eight are not the same person in a lot of subtle ways. And he's going to have to portray that. But I, you know, I think he's going to be fantastic for it. I think he's going to be, he's going to be great. Um, as far as when it's actually going to occur. Um, th- those, those timelines are as much a mystery to me as they are to anyone else. I know, I know they're, the plan now is to start shooting sometime in the relatively near future, um, because once you get people attached, you kind of have to, because otherwise yep. they're going to drift off to other projects. You know, Robert Patton's got other stuff to do with his life. So if this isn't going to get rolling, he's going to go do something else. But in, in terms of like when they're going to start shooting, when when the movie might actually be out, um, you know, your, your guess is probably as good as
0: mine at this point. OK, well, good deal well director bong i don't think is in this zoom call so don't worry that don't think he's like <laughs> watching you or keeping track on, on tabs on you so probably not probably, yeah probably, probably not. not but uh Coop, you got you have anything
1: else no look hey yeah Ed, we appreciate you coming on man West Virginia yeah, was storytelling fun. this is a different version of west virginia storytelling but maybe pretty exciting stuff man so we, we appreciate you
2: absolutely hey, i
0: really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me it's, it's a great opportunity yeah
1: good deal man good luck
0: Thank you for listening to this episode with Edward Ashton. The Mountaineer Media Podcast is producer Mason Jack, co-host Cooper Zimmerman, and the other co-host myself, CJ Harvey. Thank you for tuning in. Special thanks to all of our bloggers with Mountaineer Media, Joe Justice, Shannon Stowers, Jessica Riggins, Katherine Allen, Travis Cale, Laura Jackson Roberts, and Mackenzie Holdren. You can find all of their incredible work over on our website, mountaineermedia.org. Another special thanks to Tanya Smagaki, who sent us today's guest recommendation. She helped us connect with Edward. And if you want to get a shout out on the podcast, send us a recommendation. And if we have that person on, well, we'll make sure to give you the credit in front of our entire podcast audience. And we will also appreciate it very much as well. So please send us those names and email addresses. We'll try and connect with who you think we should have on the podcast. Make sure to check out our website, as I previously mentioned, mountaineermedia.org, where we've got several items, not just in the blog but also in our shop including our escape to west virginia merchandise which is super dope so hop on it now make sure to sign up for our newsletter where you will get monthly discount codes for our merchandise and updates on all of the happenings of mountaineer media thank you to all of our sponsors the mountaineer media podcast is presented by Mr. B, but we're also partners and supported by Building Appalachia, Raise Rub, Mountaineer Employment Solutions, and Calvin Broyles Jewelry. Thank you guys. You guys help us get this thing rolling. So thank you again for your support of us. And we definitely support you all in your efforts to making West Virginia a better place. You can find us on TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And we'll be back next Thursday, March 17th, see you then. Peace.